Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him to us and he came willingly. He came joyfully even. For what lay ahead of him was the purchase of our souls, our freedom, our forgiveness. And so he came willingly. And we thank you that on the cross he did not object. When he was challenged to speak, to pull himself off the cross, he did not, but remained silent. And that in, in the silence of the grave and out of the silence of the grave, he burst forth into new life. And we rose to life in him. Oh, we thank you for him. We thank you that he is risen. We thank you that he reigns over this world even now. And we pray, Father, for your grace to live in him. In this time of separation, that we would become all the more faithful to him. And that his resurrection would become all the more real to us, all the more hopeful to us. We pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It takes a, a long time for people to make sense of the significant events that have shaped their lives. It seems that the, the greater or more traumatic the event, the longer it takes to grasp the significance of it. We process and quickly move beyond minor events almost daily, but major things require more time and intentional effort. And this explains the reaction of the women and Peter at the empty tomb on Easter morning. St. John Chrysostom, writing in the fourth century, observed of them that they clearly understood nothing about the resurrection. They were still confined to the ground, he writes, and not yet able to fly. In verses 6 and 7, we are told that the women were present in Galilee when Jesus told them that he would rise on the third day. And yet, on the third day, they came to the tomb with their spices, expecting to properly finish the rushed preparation of a dead body for burial. And when they found it empty, Luke tells us that they were perplexed. It was only after an angel jogged their memory that they recalled Jesus' words to them and left to tell the apostles about the empty tomb. And we see that even the apostles we're not expecting resurrection because they received the testimony of these women as if it were an idle tale. Perhaps it's because they were women and perhaps it's because it seemed too far-fetched for them, too grand, too glorious for them. Only one of the 11, only one, Peter, of course, went to the tomb in Luke's gospel account. He went there and went home marveling about what had happened. He marveled not at the theological significance of the resurrection, but the mere fact that the tomb was empty. One scholar points out that in Luke's gospel, this language of marveling is a characteristic response to the extraordinary, but it is neither tantamount to faith, nor does it portend the eventuality of genuine perception or faith. In other words, Peter and these women didn't get it. They saw with their eyes an empty tomb, but they did not yet understand the significance of this reality for their lives. They were in shock. 
and in no state to sit down and articulate the, th the implications of the resurrection. Of course they understood nothing. The resurrection is a monumental reality at the very heart of Christianity with implications for every part of life. It would take years for the apostles to unpack the significance of this event. And in many ways, we are still trying to wrap our minds around it. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. The apostle Paul himself acknowledged this in 1 Corinthians 15, when he said that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians worship a corpse every week. And they have set their hope on someone who has no purchase on reality. It would certainly be a pitiable position. And to use a metaphor appropriate for this day, Christians have put all of their eggs in one basket. And that basket is the resurrection. And this is why if you're, if you're a Christian speaking about the gospel or a skeptic considering Christianity for the first time, you must begin with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the matter. Did he rise from the dead or not? It's not to be overshadowed by any other consideration. And to begin anywhere else is a bit like either recommending a restaurant or refusing to eat there because of the color of the drapes. What about the main course? It's the main course that lifts you. It's the main course that keeps you coming back for more. And the main course in Christianity is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It impacts and influences everything. There are 27 books and letters in the New Testament, and each of them is working out the implications of the resurrection for everyday life. It's unfair to expect the women or Peter to have provided a theological treatise on the resurrection that first Easter morning. But it is not unfair to expect that of those who have had more space or time from that momentous event. And when we turn to the New Testament, there we find that indeed the authors of the New Testament have written extensively on the significance of the resurrection for life. And the Apostle Paul in particular spent much energy working out the many implications of the resurrection in the life of the Christian. And there's one implication he draws out that I want us to, to meditate upon this morning, this Easter morning, because it is an implication that when grasped will, as Chrysostom has said, cause you to fly. And that implication is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alters how we view time itself. In fact, the Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss writes of the Apostle Paul that the whole context of his preaching can be summarized as the proclamation and explanation of the eschatological time of salvation inaugurated with Christ's advent, death, and resurrection. What Ritterboss is saying, in less theological terms, is that the end of the story has unexpectedly begun in the middle. The end of the story has unexpectedly begun in the middle. And it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brought about this unexpected outcome. What everyone expected was that God would allow the story of humanity to, to go on. 
for however long he wanted it to. And then when he had had enough, he would bring it to an end by coming down out of heaven and judging the world. But these expectations were only partially right. God did come down out of heaven, but the overlap between the expectation and what actually happened ends there. He did come down out of heaven. But unexpectedly, he came not as one separate from humanity to judge humanity, but as a human being born of a woman. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the Father and retaining his deity, became a human being so that he is both fully God and yet fully human. And as a human being, he now has skin in the game. He had an interest in the fate of humanity because suddenly he was and still is one of us. And as one of us, he did not come to judge us like everyone expected, but he came to save us, to redeem us from our blind rebellion. No one saw that coming. In fact, it was so unexpected that Jesus had to constantly repeat the reason why he came to us. In John 3.17, Jesus explains to a man named Nicodemus that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ came not to judge, but to save. A day for judgment will still come. But Jesus began an age of grace that stretches from his resurrection to a day sometime in the future when he will come again. A date that no one knows. And it is in this age of grace that we currently live. And what makes our time an age of grace is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. An innocent man dying as a substitute for his beloved but guilty friends. We deserve judgment because our very nature is corrupt. An inheritance you wish you could turn down, but you can't. Our fallen nature is the reason why we sometimes get so angry we hurt the people we actually love. It's the cause of our envy and gossip. It's why our loves are disordered and the reason why we consider love to be self-justifying. Jesus was not so afflicted or confused because his nature was not corrupted like ours. Jesus was like a second Adam, a second opportunity for an innocent man to get it right on behalf of the rest of us human beings. In Romans 5, Paul compares the differences between Adam of Garden of Eden fame and Jesus, a second Adam of Garden of Gethsemane fame. And he writes this, just as one man's disobedience led to death for all, so one man's obedience leads to life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam put us all to death, but Jesus brought us back to life. And he did this by dying for us and then coming alive again for us. He died in our place so that through faith in him, we will never have to experience God's displeasure or the dread of death. The judgment that he deferred for the rest of humanity, he satisfies for the Christian. The judgment for our sins, past, present, and future, was poured out on him, so that what awaits us in the future is not judgment, but rejoicing in heaven, 
rejoicing over us and rejoicing over the grace of God and showing such extreme kindness to people as ungrateful and persistently sinful as you and I. But he didn't just die. He was raised as well. Raised to new life so that our hope is likewise alive and living. And we can begin to live a new life, this new life in him here and now. And this is the reality of the resurrection that will make you fly. Your life, your story is in one sense over. Your story ended in the death of Christ, but got a new beginning in his resurrection. You were put to death in Jesus, but you were also raised in him. This means that the life you now live is his and not your own, which is really wonderful news because it means that all the things you typically worry about have been answered. The questions you're constantly asking and posing to yourself have been answered. You are guaranteed an inheritance. You are guaranteed joy. You are guaranteed victory over sin and this world. You are guaranteed rest. You are guaranteed that the injustices and frustrations you have experienced in this world, the pains of this world, will be undone. You don't have to be anxious about any of those things. Jesus has given you all things. And in Jesus, you have been given the gift of no longer having to live for yourself in this present world. With your life hidden in Christ, you have been set free to live for him alone. And if you live for him alone, you will find not that you have lost yourself, but that you are more yourself than you ever could have been when you were concerned about yourself. The apostle Paul puts it this way. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. You see the death and resurrection of Jesus and your death and resurrection in him frees you to no longer be thinking about yourself in comparison to others. You regard no one according to the flesh because you realize that you are now no longer regarded according to the flesh either. God does not deal with you according to you, but according to his son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you are loved and lovely. In the death of Jesus, you were forgiven and spared judgment. And in the resurrection of Jesus, you were raised to new life, his life. The resurrection has opened before us an age of grace in which we now live. The Christian has already been judged in Christ. And for those of you who do not currently know or love Jesus, Jesus has deferred the judgment of God so that you might have time to consider him more closely, to get over the drapes, consider the main course. And perhaps you will find your feet lifting off the ground, ready to take flight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.